Welcome to this edition of Fraud Talk, the ACFE Fraud Podcast. I'm John Gill, Chief Training Officer for the ACFE, and so my guest today is Gary Weiss. And Gary has a new book that came out in uh, late August, early September of 2022 called Retail Gangster, The Insane Real-Life Story of Crazy Eddie. I buy a lot of books from Amazon. I Actually, we have a fraud library here in Austin, Texas at the ACFE's headquarters. And so I have alerts from everywhere looking for books on fraud, especially new ones. So when this popped up, I was excited. I pre-ordered it. And when I got my copy, I was <laughs> really uh, excited to go through it and also enjoyed the pictures in here. Now, uh, there's some great ones that, that Gary has. And so actually on the day I got it, I was reading through it and I thought, this is a great book. I am enjoying this. So I reached out to Gary. He had uh, his website listed in the book, contacted him and said, I'm having a ball reading this. Would you be interested in uh, doing a podcast uh, with me about it? And he kindly wrote back that very day and, and said that he would. So Crazy Eddie, if you have not heard of him before, very quickly, it will uh, obviously talk about him a lot more uh, as we go through this. But I'm familiar with Crazy Eddie because one of our early self-study courses, and this was back when the format was a 50-minute video and then a workbook on various topics, we did one on how to detect and prevent financial statement fraud. And the featured case in that video and workbook was Crazy Eddie Antar. We had done an interview with his cousin, Sam E., initial E. Antar, and everybody called him Sammy for obvious reasons. And so uh, our founder, Dr. Joseph T. Wells, he did a video interview with him. We made that um, part of the video uh, on the Crazy Eddie story, and it was extremely fascinating. And then later, uh, Dr. Wells wrote a book called Frankenstein's a Fraud. Mm. It had some of the best fraud cases of the 20th century, and Crazy Eddie's was one of those cases. And so that's how I was familiar with the case. Always found it to be one of my favorites. It was in the, well, he committed fraud through the 70s and, and 80s and eventually, you know, went to justice in the 90s. And a lot of people, it's like, say, of a younger uh, bent, look at some of these older cases. Like, Well, that case is too old to be relevant. But I argue you would be wrong on that. I think understanding the history of fraud is important in understanding what goes on today. As uh, as Joe Wells has said before, you know, it's variations on a theme. And if you can go back and you can study these early frauds, it's still the same types of things occurring, and there's still a lot of lessons to be learned. And if nothing else, it's just important to kind of understand the history and uh, there are a lot of 
regulations, there are a lot of laws, there are a lot of changes in the way things are done that are the result of these cases. And so it's I think it's important if you are serious about being a fraud examiner, detecting and preventing fraud, to be familiar with these these really historic cases because they they really did change the profession as we know it. So that's my uh, introduction. Well, to introduce Gary and let him, he's the, he's the uh, guest, and let him speak. So talking about the fact that it was a, an older case, uh, I know later in the book you talk about you also uh, hooked up with Sam E. Antar and talked to him because he responded to a blog post that you had. Is yeah. that what gave you the idea for doing this book? Where did the idea come from? Well, as you say, it, it uh, well, first, I want to thank you for having me on this podcast. I'm really uh, looking forward to talking to you. This is one of the great fraud podcasts. And you guys know about fraud and, you know, you're going to be able to really, uh, you know, hold me to account on this. But Sam uh, contacted me because um, I had written about a particular CEO, a guy named Patrick Byrne and uh, his hijinks and his shenanigans. And uh, he was harassing everybody who didn't like his company. It became pretty notorious for that. Nowadays, he's known mainly for these election conspiracy theories. But back then, he was known mainly for uh, his uh, management, so to speak, of uh, Overstock.com. So anyway, uh, he reached out to me and he, he, he uh, put out a, con uh, a comment on my blog, that a blog that I was doing at the time, which didn't quite get go through for technical reasons. So anyway, I, I used his comment as a, um, as a blog post. And he was sort of sarcastic. He was attacking Patrick Byrne. And um, then I got to know Sam and I got to know the crazy Eddie fraud. I met him. I talked to him. Uh, I was vaguely, you know, I grew up in New York and I, I, I was familiar with crazy Eddie, uh, but I was not really that intimately aware of crazy Eddie. But I got to know Sam and I got to, you know, look through his writings, you know, his writings on fraud and uh, particularly on accounting fraud, I learned a great deal about it. And I got to know the crazy Eddie story. Now, that was a long time ago. That was my God, about 15 years ago. And over the years, I got to think about doing a book. But, you know, I was hampered by the fact that, boy, it was one hell of a story. It was like a big story. It wasn't just a fraud story. It was also a story of a successful company that engaged in a successful marketing. And also there was the cultural aspect. My God, I mean, this, this, this company was, was all over the Eastern seaboard. It was had a national reputation for its salesmanship, uh, mainly because of the, of the guy who was the front man for Crazy Eddie, who was not Eddie, but a fellow named, um, a fellow named Derek Carroll, who was, did the commercials. Our prices are insane. You know, it, it became well-known everywhere. So it was such a big and unwieldy, story. It was like writing about an octopus, you know, with various tentacles. So it took a while. I did a couple other books in the interim, and it, it took me a while to get my hands around it. And I finally did two years ago. And uh, this book is the is the result of that. Hell of a story. Most difficult story I've ever had to had to deal with, though. I, I don't mean to complain, but that was that was my observation. But I think it was worth it. Uh, there's a lot to unpack uh, as you're going through it. And, and I was most familiar because we had focused primarily on the financial statement part of it in, in our teachings. 
I was very interested to learn that they were engaging in fraud from the very start. Mm. And that was that was something that I had not been that familiar with. And, and again, like Gary said, the if even if you if if you go on YouTube and put in Crazy Eddie commercials, there's several commercials on there. And if you've never seen one, it is worth doing that. That was their claim in fame. And you you um document the history of that, but it was very it was brilliant. People love to hate the crazy Eddie commercials, and they would come on with Jerry Carroll, who was the spokesperson, screaming, you know, we will not be understood. Our prices are insane. And it became a cultural phen- phenomenon. And sure. and people loved it. And they would come in and they would buy consumer electronics. But from the start, they were engaging in some of your typical schemes of bait and switch where people would come in and they would see the ad for one product and they would try and talk them out of that and, and to get a product where they beta uh, more on the, on the product margins. Right. 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 Exactly. Yeah. I mean, pretty much the entire operation was permeated with fraud, uh, which is not to say that everybody was who worked there was a fraudster. That's absolutely not true. I mean, the marketing people were pretty much clean. Uh, the, um, I'd say the salesmen, although they engaged in practices, they were eh, a little questionable. I mean, they were basically legitimate. I mean, they were selling a legitimate product. Uh, but, you know, if, you, if it just, just, just a little bit under the surface from the very beginning, there was fraud, fraud, fraud. I mean, for example, the logo of Crazy Eddie uh, that he started using sometime in the late 70s was this crazy looking guy and it was all over the place. It was on his stock certificates. It was in his commercials. It was on his business cards. It was everything. It was iconic. It was this 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 guy. It, it was like an image, a, a logo, I guess, a trademark, a service mark of a of a crazy man. Okay, well, he stole that. Eddie stole that from a uh, cartoonist named Robert Crum, R. Crum, who was well known in the '60s for his. Uh, his, uh, car, his 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 famous cartoon uh, Fritz the Cat. It became a movie, you know, and he did cartoons. But he stole that from from Crumb, and Crumb didn't know it. Uh, well, I mean, Crumb knew about it, but Crumb didn't give permission for him to. You can't just steal a logo. I mean, I can't steal your logo, or whatever. He just stole the logo and didn't pay him a penny. Didn't ask him. And it was that kind of thing throughout. Eddie stole from everybody he came into contact with. The closer you were to Eddie, the more likely it was that he was going to cheat you or steal from you. I mean, some guy, I mean, there's a little anecdote I, I have in the book about this guy named Newman, Gerald Newman, who um, carried out uh, you know, consulting work for Eddie to get him to make him go public. You know, he carried out consulting work for Eddie. He had a handshake agreement. Big mistake. You don't have a handshake agreement with Eddie Antar. No, no. So they had a handshake agreement. Eddie didn't pay him a penny. And he sued. Newman sued. Lost. Because there's this thing in the law. They call it the statute of frauds. You, you, you're, you're, uh, over a certain amount of money, it's got to be committed into writing. And, uh, you know, on the basis of that, it was thrown out. He didn't pay him a penny. He sued. He appealed. He lost. And this is an example of the way Eddie treated people, and ultimately it led to his downfall. But he was engaged in all manner of fraud. You know, I get into the 
uh, warranty fraud. You know, there were frauds over the warranties. Uh, there was fraud, you know, phony warranty claims were a moneymaker for Eddie. Uh, insurance fraud was a moneymaker. It called it spiking the claim. And as you mentioned earlier, there was a blatant bait and switch. People come in for one kind of product and they walk away with another product. You know, the Eddie advertised that he have all the big names, Sony, Panasonic, Bose, blah, 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 blah. You know, he advertised that, but when you get into his store, you find that he wasn't that anxious to sell you a Sony. Now, you'd think that he'd want to sell you a high-priced Sony, but no. The Sonys didn't give him much of a profit margin, so he'd switch you to a Sharp and look, hey, he wants you to save money. You know, he wants you to go to a cheaper product. What he didn't tell you was that the Sharp or the lower-priced product Gave him a higher profit margin, and that's that's bait and switch. But it didn't smell like bait and switch to the customer because he's he wants you to go to a lower price margin. He was a everything, and of course he 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 stole from his from his wife. He cheated his wife. He treated his wife abysmally. You know everybody. Yeah, we'll get into that. That's that was an interesting story. But you do explain how he could have such uh, insanely low prices. One of the ways he's he didn't. He collected the sales tax, but he didn't forward it on to the taxing authorities. Oh, sure. Yeah. So that gave him a really sort of a built in, uh, a built in uh, sort of it, it gave him some wiggle room there in setting his prices. So, you know, because he was not he was collecting taxes, but not turning them into the government, uh, he was able to undercut his competitors if they weren't engaged in that exact same practice and most of them weren't you know it so he, he he was able from the beginning to 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 sometimes sell even under 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 cost because he was taking them and 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 therefore he was able to have these big advertised specials in which he didn't uh in, in which he was able to 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 sell for on under cost uh, because of the fact that he collected the sales tax, which I think at the time was 7%. And this sort of gave him an automatic profit margin. Oh, I've got a quote I'd like to read. Uh, the insurance fraud was also interesting uh, to me because, you know, these were, some of these were older buildings. And yes, they had not unexpectedly a pipe would break or their roof would leak and there would be water damage. And so what what was funny to me is like, well, as soon as, you know, let's say the basement filled with water, they were bringing boxes of full of products from other stores and dumping them down in the water so that they could claim the losses on their insurance. And uh, I thought, yeah, there any way to to game the system they were they were open for it but that was funny it's like well they had a you know if he, he had a uh water leak why not take advantage of that let's get some of this merchandise that we can't sell we'll put it down and there's like well if it wasn't enough water still left they would get a hose out and they would hose it down but here's a quote i like from the book it says eddie had limits when it came to insurance fraud he never started a fire in one of his stores, never faked a robbery, or sabotaged his own plumbing. Uh, Sam, we remembered how furious Eddie was when he learned about a fire that occurred in one of the other stores. And it's like he didn't torch the place. What got him mad 
was not that the plant burned down, but that his partner hadn't insured it for fire damage. They missed out on uh, spiking the enhanced windfall. So it was like, well, if it had burned down, they could have claimed all this extra merchandise and gotten insurance proceeds, but they didn't take out any insurance coverage on it. But it was interesting to me that that was his line. It's like, well, I'm not going to break the pipe on purpose. That would be wrong. But if the pipe happens to break, then he saw nothing wrong with throwing all the merchandise he could possibly fit in the basement down in the basement to collect uh, on the coverage. So it's such an odd line to me that he seemed to take pride that he, well, I didn't, that's, I didn't commit insurance fraud really because I didn't break the pipe. The pipe just happened to break. A few extra boxes fell in. Ah, so be it. Yeah. They used to call it spiking the claim. You know, you got a claim. Let's, Let's let's make the most of it. In fact, he used to keep uh, waterlogged merchandise that he had previously submitted for claims. Uh, he used to keep them in a special warehouse. And then he trod on them out. So not only would he bring uh, poor selling merchandise and dump it in the basement, you know, if there was a flood or whatever, but he'd take uh, merchandise that he previously had submitted for claims that, that were these moldy boxes and he'd dump the moldy boxes in. And he had a crooked insurance adjuster. Uh, working with them. You really need an insurance adjuster in uh, those types of commercial claims. You need a crooked insurance adjuster who he paid under the table and who in turn paid the other guy under the table. He was never caught for that. In fact, what's remarkable about Eddie is that uh, he wasn't caught for the majority of the crimes that he committed, not for the insurance fraud, which was blatant. Uh, the warranty claims were part of the initial little uh, one of it, part of his initial uh, criminal complaint. So it was kind of, but it was not big. You know, he was never really caught up short for the warranty claims. Uh, or and 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 the sales tax fraud was really significant. It was a big, big money maker. And you know, back in the seventies when he was doing this, he was starting to do this by the seventies and eighties. There was so much crime going on in New York City. Uh, of all kinds, of all kinds, that it just was part of the background noise of crime in New York at the time. And uh, that's one of the reasons he was able to get away with it. That and I think the fact that he didn't, you know, as you point out, you know, he didn't he didn't uh, deliberately rob his own stores or, or create conditions. He just took advantage of them. And, you know, he, he, he didn't go overboard with this insurance fraud, which I think was less a question of morality than one of perhaps sort of risk you know he wasn't willing to take quite that amount of risk you know if he had a, a legitimate uh broken pipe perhaps he felt again i don't know the exact reason uh but i assume that perhaps it was in his case i don't think it was morality i don't believe he had any i think it was it was risk on his part probably well he was too afraid they could tell if he had uh broken the pipe himself because then they're like well that's more serious they, uh, I guess, as part of doing business, they just assume, well, people are going to pad their claims or spike their claims, and that's just the cost of doing business, and we build that into the premiums. But if you go the extra step and burn your store down or try and uh, break a pipe for fake water damage, then they take that more seriously, and it was more likely to involve the police. So it, I think it's not a line of morality was more of, he thought, well, if I went that far, they would probably call the cops on me and I would get caught. Yeah. Well, particularly for something like arson, you know, you have to hire an arsonist and, uh, 
they might not, you know, the fire inspectors, even in those days, were pretty serious fire inspectors. They were incorruptible, uh, the fire inspectors in, in New York City. And, and uh, I think they might have been able to find out that it was arson. Uh, true, there was widespread arson in the South Bronx at the time. Half the South Bronx was burned down and uh, very few prosecutions. But perhaps he felt, look, I, I don't want to go that far. I don't want to have to hire an arsonist, uh, bring people in who were not in the family to carry out these crimes. You know, he, he his feeling was that, you know, he kept everything within the family and trusted subordinates. And that was his strategy for getting away with it. And he almost did get away with it, really. Real quick on the warranty fraud, just uh, uh, for people who are listening. There mm. were several. The, the one that I remember the, the most uh, that you had highlighted was the fact that somebody would bring in a in, you know VCR. It was out of warranty. And they said, well, sorry, there's nothing we can do about it. It's out of warranty. But they would take it and then they would fake the documentation to show uh, change the sales date, and then they would submit it to the manufacturer for repairs or reimbursement, and they would just keep that. So the customer was, you know, out of luck, but they got reimbursement for warranty claims that they kept. Sure, sure. And also they would put in for part for work that was not done, even in legitimate, you know, they would spike their warranty claims. So, um, you know, one of the people involved in warranty fraud, uh, the, the head of warranty for what for for a time at, at uh, Crazy Eddie, the majority of the of the claims that he put it put in were phony claims. So it was a big big thing at Crazy Eddie, big thing. So they were making a lot of money uh, mm. through all these schemes, and they kept opening stores and opening stores. And and one thing that they were doing, which comes into play later, is they were skimming a lot of that money and they were moving it overseas mm -hmm. and they called it was the the necti the necti yeah that's cash skim yeah right necti yeah and most of it was going to uh overseas banks in particular uh bank in israel correct and there right. were, you know uh i forgot the amount at one point I think it got up to about 50 million, 53 million or something that was over yeah. there. Or I may be wrong on the number. But they were moving a lot of money overseas uh, to so they wouldn't have to pay taxes on it. But what was interesting is when they they then got to a point where now they needed money because they had bled so much out of the company that somebody said, well, you know, if you just go public, and have an initial public offering, an IPO, well, you could make lots of money. And so they thought that sounded like a great idea. But then when they started, and, and Sam E. Antar that we've been talking about, he was the CFO of the company. He, he went and got an accounting degree and took the CPA exam because Eddie had asked him to. It was a very family-run business. Yeah, he worked for Crazy Eddie's auditors, as a matter of fact. They're early auditors for for his uh, accounting training. But the Necti was was really uh, it, that was really interesting. You know, they had, they were skimming the money like a lot of merchants do. Look, uh, you know, skimming money, putting it in, your, in a safe deposit box. So they put it in 
Uh, they used to uh, hide it originally in the ceiling panels of their houses and in radiators and in mattresses and other traditional hiding places for cash. Over time, they started putting it, sending it to accounts in Israel. You know, they liked Israel. You know, they, they enjoyed traveling there. So they, you know, they take a little trip to Israel and, and deposit it at, at, at Bank Leumi in, uh, in Tel Aviv. Uh, before they went public, um, Sammy, their young, nerdy accounting maven, he, um, he said to them, look, you know, we got all this money overseas. and uh, You're saving in taxes, but look, you can you can use this money, but you're, you're, you're saving in taxes, but you're shooting yourself in the foot because all the money that you're taking out is reducing your profits. Now, look, if you want to go public, you know, this was the 80s when the, the IPO uh, IPO craze was just heating up. He said, look, you know, if you want to go public, what you want to do is you want to make it seem if you've got increasing profits. So what I suggest you do is take this money that we got sitting out there in Israel and start. Well, and, and, and what, you, what you want to do is, well, you want to reduce the amount of money that you that you take out of the company and reduce it in such a way to make it seem that, whoa, our profits are really increasing because they're taking less and less money out of the company. And it worked because you looked at these, at these balance sheets, you look at these, these operating statements in the, in the prospectus and whoa, it was really good. This was a great company. You know, if they had not done that, if they were not manipulating their cash take out of the company, they would have been. They would have had a fairly um, mediocre record of sales and profit increases. It wouldn't have looked that great if they hadn't been doing this. And I'm not sure they would have been able to go public at all. Or if they had been able to go public, it probably would have been with some schlocky penny stock outfit, and not with Oppenheimer and Company, which was a very prestigious, which was, and I guess still is, to the extent that it still exists. It was a very uh, uh, prestigious uh, uh, investment bank. So then they had all this money, but nevertheless, they, you know, they were taking less out uh, of the company, but they still had a lot of money in, uh, in Israel uh, and, in, and in other places. And uh, they began, over time, they, they found a use for that too. It was, yeah, I thought it was um, so odd that they had to stop, in order to go public, they had to stop stealing so much so that it would yeah. actually look profitable because it was getting so they taken so much. If you looked at it, the, the company didn't look very good at all. But when you saw the actual sales, it wasn't like you said, it wasn't too bad. So they had to slowly. They, they uh, I remember they, they had a, a, a very you know, pretty good plan on that because they couldn't just stop all at once because like, well, wait, you know, one quarter. The sales are minimal, and now all of a sudden they're you know uh, they're so high, and they're bringing so much revenue. So they had to slowly do this uh, so that it wouldn't look so odd, and it would look like well they were just you know uh, making money you know each month or each quarter. So they finally got to a point where they decided that the books looked good enough that they might pass muster if somebody looked at them. And so that's when they started um, looking at Oppenheimer and they had, you know, a, they had some really first class people involved with this uh, oh, law firms and uh, the underwriter Oppenheimer. And, and uh, they had a, a, a big eight 
at, at the time or big whatever they they had a, a, a well known I guess the forerunner of KPMG KMG Maine was uh-huh. the audit firm and so what really surprised me is that with this talent that was looking at their information trying to decide if they were going to you know sponsor this public offering how did they miss all of this it it's well you know what it is really it's uh, it's it's the assumption that people make and it's usually a valid assumption that uh, when they're dealing with a um, with a company, that the company may be cutting corners, may not be a hundred percent truthful, but isn't just out and out crooks. Now, this is this is the same assumption, and it's usually a, a valid assumption. I mean, if you assume that everybody you deal with might be a complete crook, well, then you're just kind of paranoid, you know. Uh, you know, uh, wait a second. That's, that that looks to me, you know, their profits doing well. They obviously are a Ponzi scheme. No, no, no. In most cases, 90% of the time, you're dealing with CEOs who are basically honest. They're basically honest. They aren't, or at least not felons. You know, they're not going to go to prison someday. Madoff benefited from that generally correct assumption. And so did Antar before him. He, you assume that the person that you're dealing with, that the people you're dealing with are, are, are not dishonest. And look, at the time, uh, Eddie's company fell into a um, certain category of company that was very fashionable at the time. Like um, there was, for instance, Manny, Moe, and Jack, uh, the auto parts chain that was very popular, and it, it, it was it was viewed as the, as a you know like a real working man's. Uh, it was it was viewed as as a company that was a little rough around the edges, just like many Mo and Jack and some of these other uh, working class type companies. Uh, a little rough around the edges, but 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 basically profitable companies. So they benefited from that, and the and the um, auditors coming by these were Ivy, you know, the the guys who did the due diligence. They were Ivy Leaguers. They weren't. You weren't uh, acquainted with these Brooklyn uh, Brooklyn guys, you know, and they were charmed and uh, suckered by these guys, and they never assumed. Look, these guys are just complete felons. They're 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 lying to me. They, they never they never assumed that. And look, if I was one of those auditors, I'd, I I don't think I'd have necessarily assumed that you know the profits were ginned up by manipulation of cash skim i don't think i would have assumed that and most people wouldn't you know and that's uh, a good point and one of the you know tenets of our profession especially uh, in in the audit profession that we we try and teach is this idea of professional skepticism oh yeah that you're right i mean they're your first for an ordinary human being your first reaction is to trust people yeah. And, and you, you you don't assume that if they hand you a, a set of financials that everything on here is fraudulent. You you think, well, they probably inflated inventory slightly or maybe they played fast and loose with timing of the, the sales. But you, you don't go into it thinking everything on this sheet is somehow manufactured, which in Crazy Eddie's case, 
that actually was the case. I mean, virtually every line item on that financial statement was fraudulent. Uh, all of those numbers were were incorrect. So it it one of the lessons that I take from Crazy Ed, uh, and also I did a, a interview recently with Barry a guy named Barry Minko, who was the Z best fraud. He started he was in his teens. He started carpet cleaning business. And he went public, and it was the same thing. It was all of the numbers were fraudulent. But no one looking at it thought, well, no, ever, well, put it this way. Everyone thought no one would do that. Oh, sure, it sure. It was just you, the, the blatantness of it, I think, caught everybody off guard because no one does that. No one would be brave enough to or stupid enough to just fraudulently inflate everything on their statements. And I love some of the inventory stories because obviously that's a large part of their worth is all the electronic equipment that they had and so there were some i remember some stories from the interview that we did with sammy about you know they're just they're counting one warehouse they'd find out where they were going where were they where did they want to go tomorrow and then overnight they would just take all the merchandise from warehouse one move it to the, the second warehouse and it all over again and you tell a story about they were watching they had auditors on site counting the merchandise and they had all their notes and papers and they would lock them up when they went home and they noticed they put the they hid the key in a box of paper clips and so they would go in and take the key unlock see what the auditors had uh, counted and again then start moving the merchandise around so that they would count it a second time and so yeah. It was uh, well, the amount the amount of the of the of the uh, fraud was was really quite extraordinary. I mean, and for instance, as we, you know, we were talking about the uh, the decrease in the necti and how that inflated uh, that inflated the fraud. I was, I was just looking, you know, between 1981 and 1982, profits increased two percent. Now that would really not have gotten them a very good IPO. They inflated that number to forty-eight <laughs> percent by uh, by manipulating the NACTI. And obviously, the, yeah, I think the majority, I you know, I think the majority of people are looking looking at this forty-eight percent number. Say, well, maybe the real number is forty percent, but not two percent. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and uh, another lesson here is, you know, I think for people when they're uh, doing fraud awareness training, there were people who participated in this but had no, you know, fraudulent motive whatsoever. And there were numerous stories about where he would, you know, call up one of his uh, suppliers and say, hey, we need the merchandise now, but can you wait and bill us next month? And they would do it like, okay, we'd do that as a friend, not realizing that that was going towards committing the financial statement fraud. There were people within the company that had worked there a long time, and it was kind of a family atmosphere. And Eddie would say, well, we just need to kind of bump up these numbers. You know, can you pad this a little bit? And they would do it because Eddie had asked them to do yeah, it. Yeah, loyalty. loyalty. And they didn't necessarily understand uh, that 
increasing the value of the inventories would increase their profits. This is uh, not a terribly esoteric accounting principle, but lay people don't necessarily understand that. And that's why, that's one of the reasons he was able to get away with it. You know, I, I, I describe how there was, this, I, there were two warehouse managers, both named Dave. There's the honest Dave that I describe and the dishonest Dave. The dishonest Dave um, was involved in some other scam that they were involved in. Um, in fact, I believe he was, he was the one who was involved in the warranty fraud. The dishonest Dave, um, he participated in this fraud, not knowing why. The account, the, the the inflating the warehouses, not knowing exactly why, and the honest Dave, for the same, pretty much the same reason, he was asked, he was loyal, but they both probably didn't entirely understand. Well, why did Eddie want me to inflate these inventories? You know, what is there about having the? Okay, yeah, yeah, it's better to have more stuff in your warehouse than less, but what? Why did he want me to do this? And of course, Eddie was desperate to increase his profits because after, you know, he went public and after he started, after the fraud started to, 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 to grow and grow, it came obvious to him that, and obvious to everybody, that you, you, you really need to commit more and more fraud as, as you go on because otherwise everything will just collapse. It's a little bit like a Ponzi scheme to that extent. You know, you, you know, in order, you just can't just let bygones be bygones if you're a public company, because people will notice if you stop, if you stop committing fraud, then everything just sort of collapses as eventually. Well, and I, I didn't mark, but somewhere you had a line like fraud is, is a beast that has to continually be fed. And yeah. that was the, the problem that they had was that you can't just stop. <laughs> you have to, con in fact, one of the, on the back end is that one of the, as it was going down, they were thinking, well, we need to go private and buy back the stock. Because we'll never, that's the only way they could see to get out from under this. And mm. then that led to all types of other problems because there were other family members that owned stock that didn't want, you know, to get in, uh, involved with this. And then the, the Wall Street was getting rumors that he, you know, he was selling stock because then he was getting paranoid and, and he, it was, it really did spiral out of, of control uh, there at the end. And, and you mentioned his wife. That was something that actually did that stuck with me. You know, it wasn't just defrauding the, the investors, defrauding the state, defrauding uh, insurance companies. He really pulled a number on his first wife to the point where I thought that was one of the worst things the man did. Uh, basically she wanted, he had had a both wife, both his wife and his girlfriend were named Debbie. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. You labeled Debbie one, Debbie two. Oh, yeah. And so he's living, you know, off with Debbie two and, Debbie one side, she doesn't want to have, you know, not going to put up with this. She wants a divorce. And so he brings her all these papers, tells her to sign them and tells her that, oh, well, this is just some preliminary papers. The judge will look through everything and the judge will give you your fair share. But what she actually signed 
said that she got nothing. All right. Yeah, he completely cheated her in the divorce and lied to her. And, you know, the closer you were, as I mentioned earlier, the closer you were to, to Eddie, the more likely it was you'd be completely swindled. And that's what, the way it was with his wife, um, you know, the, the mother of his five daughters. And um, he promised her the, the moon, in effect, and gave her basically nothing. Um he had her sign a separation agreement, which in New York uh, basically sets the terms of your divorce. And he said, well, this is, this is just a, this is just a, he, she claims never to have read it. And she probably didn't, you know, she, you, you should go ahead and sign this, sign this, sign this. So she signed it. Um, and she came away with nothing. She was fighting. She fought that in the courts. She won in the courts after it all collapsed. She was still fighting it through 2021 just a couple of years ago, just a year ago, because she never collected a penny. Even though she won in the courts, she never collected a penny. He just never paid her. Another co-defendant never paid her. So she never, she, she never collected a, she never collected well, a penny. And then as things did get really bad, he threw everybody else under the bus and tried to blame anything that was going wrong on the other family members, Sam, Sammy, Antara's cousin was like, you know, blamed him uh, for everything. But then it, it did start to collapse. The FBI and the SEC both um, started looking more closely into it and they both opened investigations and it was becoming clear that uh, the end was in sight. And so, uh, Eddie, instead of facing the music, he decided he's going to cut and run. So what did um, what did Eddie do when when the, when the heat got turned up? Well, as soon as he realized that, uh, you know, things were turning sour here, you know, the fraud was really increasing. It was running. It was spiraling out of control and he, he couldn't get his hands uh, over the fraud. He started putting his money. Uh, he put like all of his assets, he transferred, he already had assets in Israel and he transferred all of his money to Israel. And then he, he became, um, and this is uh, actually before he fled, he made some trips to Israel, he became a citizen of Israel. And then he created, he, he got through nefarious means, he got phony passports, phony identities. And then he made one of his aliases, a phony identity, a non-existent person with a phony Brazilian passport, he made one of his alter egos, his non-existent alter egos. He had that person, you know, posing as that person, he became a citizen of Israel. He became a citizen of Israel under his real name, which was legitimate, and under a phony name, which is absolutely not legitimate at all. Uh, when the Israelis found out, and that was a big mistake, when the Israelis found out they were Curious, you know. Ordinarily, the Israelis took a, took a sort of a laissez-faire attitude. They were really not that anxious to turn over uh, immigrants back to the countries of origin, even if they were criminals. And that was the problem when Meyer Lansky immigrated to Israel. You know, the major racketeer from the 1930s. He immigrated to Israel in the 1970s, and uh, Israel was loath to turn him over to the United States. Oh, they eventually did. He was an embarrassment. Well, Eddie had, had had violated Israeli law in a big way, and they were anxious to get rid of him, and they and they did eventually. They 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 you know Eddie fought 
But he was, after about a year, he, he had to go back to the United States and face the music. And they did help track him down with the help of American authorities and found him mm-hmm. and got him extradited. And Sure. He, uh, he established uh, accounts throughout the world, including one in Switzerland. He, he assumed incorrectly that uh, the Swiss bank authorities would you just like in the movies, you know, that they would never turn over any information to the U.S., far perish the thought. Well, that wasn't quite correct, okay? So the Swiss authorities did cooperate, and as a result of Eddie making a serious but very common mistake among fugitives, he used his real birth date in some uh, in, in one of the his phony uh, accounts that he set up. Um, he was discovered. His identity, his uh, location in Israel, was quickly ascertained, and uh, then he was he was arrested. And then he came back, and they had a jury trial, and he was found guilty on all the counts. Mm-hmm. And you think, aha, you know, that's the it, uh, justice is served. He's he's going to um, he got a pretty stiff sentence. I forgot exactly what it was. And you think, well, that was that would be the end of it. But no, they appealed the verdict. And amazingly, it was overturned on appeal. So after the appeal, he was set free because the judge had made some comments during sentencing that the defense argued made it sound like he was had already made up his mind early in the trial that that Eddie was guilty. The I was a little surprised. There's. uh, I haven't read all the trial briefs, but just what you have here and what I remember, it was the comment I, was certainly I would not have taken it that way. It was more yeah. that he was saying, well, the judge said that it was looking at the property and that he wanted, you know, since Eddie was guilty, that from the start, he wanted to make sure that since Eddie was guilty, that the money would go to the victims and the people yeah. that deserved it. And yeah. so the court took the, the appellate court took that to mean, oh, well, he'd already made up his mind yeah. before trial. He was guilty. So it was released. And I so that was that was certainly a, a shock to people when that happened. But I think he realized that the, when he saw all of the evidence that the, the prosecutors had presented at trial, that it, it was not going to come out differently. He got, you know, it was overturned based on a technicality, in effect. So he did, he pleaded guilty the second time. Yeah. But he did get a little bit of a reduced sentence. It, uh, yeah. Well, he he, uh, he wound up uh, spending seven years in prison, which is, uh, you know, that's not a, a not slap on the Insignificant, but. It was significant. He pleaded, he pleaded guilty, cut a. He cut a deal with um, with with the prosecutors, and he cut a, he got um, pleaded guilty to uh, one count of racketeering, of RICO conspiracy. So he in effect admitted all the stuff that he'd been lying about. You know, he was giving interviews before he was uh, while he was in prison in Israel, and after he was convicted, in which he told elaborate lies. But he finally, uh, since he pleaded guilty, he finally admitted to the truth of the allegations that everybody had been making against him for, for years. 
Um, and you have to admit, you know, if it was if he hadn't pleaded guilty, he would never have admitted to any of that stuff. And he did. And after he pleaded guilty and after, you know, he finally spent a period of time in prison, seven years total from the time he was apprehended in 1992. He was released in 99. Um, he never gave any interviews in which he claimed to be innocent. Uh, at that point, it was a little it was a little ridiculous. So he, he never did. Well, not that that would have necessarily prevented him from making a stupid claim like that. But after that, after that, you, you know, just, but it would have at least made you feel a little better if at some point he actually did feel some regret, some sorrow mm -hmm. for what he did. But I, he, he went to his grave, I think saying it, it, I, I, yeah, I pleaded guilty, but I still don't think I did anything wrong. I mean, it, he never quite, he, there was certainly no, mea culpa at any point where he apologized uh, and again like you said he fought the lawsuit with his his ex-wife and he blamed all of the people like sam sammy uh the the cousin who was the cfo really did go above and beyond i mean he mm. in cooperating with the prosecutors and and the prosecutors and the fbi all gave statements at his uh, sentencing hearing talking about he was extremely thorough uh just tons of cooperation which is is rare and he they he has i think really tried it to be, you always wonder why fraudsters want to talk about their frauds and i think it's a combination some of them like to brag about what they did because they feel like, well, look how smart I was. I was able to get away with this. But I do think that's a little bit with, with Sammy. However, there is, I think, a genuine, when he speaks to groups, he is really trying to say, look, I'm embarrassed and sorry for what I did. I'm trying to, through my presentations, warn people that, this can happen under the right circumstances and you do have to be skeptical you do have to uh look at what's going on and, and just assume that everything could be fraudulent uh well having spent two years you know studying crazy eddie and his family and all the different frauds you know having some time to let that kind of gel and again, our audience, people who are looking for fraud within their organizations, they're looking for fraud in financial statements, at file government filings. What are some of the lessons that you feel like you've learned and that you could share with our audience about uh, what you learned from working on the Crazy Eddie case? Well, one of the lessons I learned, you know, in terms of the character of the people of, of Eddie and of actually of his, of his co-conspirators, uh, it's just an observation. I don't think it would help too much in terms of covering fraud, but he, Eddie was a very poor chess player, uh, as the way I would describe it. He, he couldn't think two or three steps ahead. He was impulsive. You know, for instance, going public turned out to be the worst mistake of their lives because since they went public, it never dawned on them. But by going public, they were exposing them to being taken over. And if they were taken over, 
the fraud would be exposed. It, it was completely foreseeable, and that's exactly what happened. Um, I would say that in terms of, you know, looking at it from the professional standpoint, from the standpoint of the professional um, uh, auditor or fraud examiner, as you say, you have to sometimes try to think the unthinkable. Uh, the unthinkable, you know, you see this really amazing increase in profits. You know, like I say, it was 48% between 81 and 82, I believe it wasn't. It was actually 3%. You see these amazing, when you see amazing numbers, think the unthinkable. What could they have done to cause this? Now, I'm not saying that it was necessarily possible for people to uncover the skim that caused the 3% to go to 48%. But thinking the unthinkable might have put you a little bit closer to that answer. You know, think, think it, it, to have to, uncovered Eddie and his scams would have required really deep knowledge of his mindset and the way he thought. And that would only have been possible really if you if you got to know well, not so much the culture, but if you got to know him and his family and if, and it would have required, and I'm not really sure necessarily that an investigation of Eddie would have necessarily uncovered much. You know, he was a high school dropout. He worked in Times Square. He worked um, in some sleazy places, ripping off customers in Times Square. But how do you find that out? You know, um, generally speaking, the only way you find out something like that is through informants. So short of, and of course, there'd be no reason for an informant to come forward if you're an investigator. But getting to know the people as best you can, getting to know them, not as friends, but as targets, is what you really <laughs> need. If you find yourself confronted with numbers that are just too good to be true. And that was the tip off, really, with Eddie. He had numbers that were too good to be true, 48%. And look at the industry as a whole. They weren't getting anywhere near that, 48%. It requires thinking the unthinkable and viewing your subject as a target. And okay, maybe being a little paranoid. That's okay, because it was only the paranoid people who ultimately uncovered Madoff. Nobody uncovered Antar. You know, the, I will say that the um, Barons, in an article on the initial red herring, did a very, very good job. But they didn't write about fraud. They were just they were just looking at what was what was what was disclosed in the red herring was really kind of strange. But it didn't really speak of fraud. It spoke of some very sort of strange stuff going on. For instance, they they disclosed the existence of a medical school on the island of Saint Lucia that wasn't really doing all that well. So there was a lot of smoke. There was no fire. Um, it it requires really exa examining uh, being not just almost skeptical, but adversarial. And even so, there's an excellent chance you're not going to find <laughs> what you're looking for. You, you that's what, without being an adversarial, without being ultra skeptical, there's never, you will never be able to uncover fraud. You might as well just not even bother. Eddie, the crazy 80s will just slide right on by. All right. Well, Gary, I like I said, I appreciate your spending your time. I did enjoy the book. It had a, a great story, and I do think the the lessons are are relevant. 
and it's just it's hard to believe the all the things that they were able to do and get away with and how long they were able to do it and so they're just uh it's 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 very fascinating yeah well thank you very much for having me on i appreciate it very much well good luck with the book and uh i hope to have you back as a, a guest again another time i'd love to do it thanks again for talking all right Thank you, and thanks to our listeners. Hope you've enjoyed this edition of Fraud Talk, uh, the podcast for the ACFE. And uh, again, this has been John Gill and Gary Weiss, and thank you very much for your time.